It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown coming away live from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, it's been a fun day so far. A oh, number to call. Let me give you that first, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. You've got questions. We've got answers. So all questions of all kinds are welcome. Nothing is off limits if it's appropriate for Live Christian Radio, then by all means, give us a call, 866-348-7884. So uh, flew in from Dallas this morning, excuse, excuse me, flew into Dallas this morning, and there was a mix-up with my driver. He was sent wrong information. He was told I was coming several hours later on a different airline from a different location, which means that he got somebody else's info there. And uh, so got an Uber, made my way over to the hotel, only to find out that the Ethernet connection was not in the room. This is how we connect remotely with our high-tech remote audio equipment for our radio broadcasts. That's why we are audio only today. We are not video as well. So anyhow, uh, get to the hotel, find out they don't have the connection well, they're trying to put me in another room, like the business lounge. So that means you have to shut it out. No one else can use it. They said, well, let's check. And they said, oh, actually, there is a connection in your room. So I have to move the furniture, found the connection, only to find out that the connection was not connecting properly. So we had to come up with another solution. And three minutes before the show started, <laughs> working feverishly with our team, we stumbled on the solution. Well, worked hard to get the solution. But here we are live as always, uh, last night, I debated a full preterist. You say, what's a full preterist? It's someone who believes not just that Jesus already returned, that, that they believe there'll be no second coming at the end of the age. There will be no future resurrection of the dead. They believe that we already live in the new heaven and the new earth. Yeah, uh, remarkable. Uh, the gentleman, a very nice guy, had really pressed me for months, wanted to do a debate. I said, sure, we'll do it. It was set up another location. That location had to cancel out when they had a change of plans. So we just hosted it at our home congregation. Uh, just normally have a little chapel service with a few students there. So we opened it up for a debate, did a live stream, which already has uh, well over 10,000 views. And uh, it was, I, I didn't want to do the debate because it's not the kind of thing I think we should debate. Did the resurrection of the dead already happen? Are we already living in the new heaven and earth where there's no more death or mourning or crying? <clears throat> Obviously, not the kind of thing you think you need to debate. I said, look, we, we could more debate whether Martians have taken over the human race and whether giraffes are elephants than we could debate this. Anyway, we did the debate. Uh, my heart's heavy for the gentleman I debated. He's very passionate about this field. He's in the right doesn't disturb him that no one in church history up until around 1970, on any side, on any major side, any creed, any major statement, statement of the early church fathers, it just has never been held to, ever, this position. Didn't disturb 
the debater at all. And, you know, we communicated our love for each other since the debate. But, boy, just wild. And I'll say this before I go to the phones. I debated Don Preston, who is maybe the most prolific full preterist out there. When we debated Romans 11, a couple of different passages, first, what it means Israel will be saved, second, what the fullness of the Gentiles is, I didn't realize what his full position was. Uh, just in the busyness of schedule, I had not researched fully his position. I, I looked at the text we were going to examine, and I thought, well, that's fine. We'll move forward. I, I had a, a little bit of idea of his position. It was only towards the end of the, the second debate I fully realized some of the implications of his position, and others had warned me, hey, these folks believe the resurrection is already past, or there's a spiritual resurrection. There is no physical resurrection. In any case, I, I see notices sometimes on social media from Don Preston say, well, why don't you want to debate me again? Well, we debated twice. Now, I've written over 30 books. I think Don Preston's written something around there, too. But as far as I know, all of his books, Dr. Preston's books, are on the same subject. I've debated now Don Preston twice, now Michael Sullivan once. I, I don't have a need to debate full preterists anymore. I have no need to do it, and it's not debatable to me whether the resurrection already happened or whether there'll be a physical resurrection. As I asked Michael Sullivan last night, and, and this was one of the saddest moments to me, I asked him repeatedly, Okay, what language could God have used to convey that there will be a future physical resurrection? What language could be used? I never got an answer. Because all the language in the Bible is literal people coming out of their graves, people coming out of the dust, our physical body being changed, our, our mortal body putting on immortality, and on and on and on and on and on and on. So, so what, what language could be used? If you're going to spiritualize all this away, what language could be used? I was never told. Sadly, I was never told. So... Anyway, just wanted to share that with you. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to the phone, starting in Kansas with Jacob. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Michael Brown. How's it going? Hello. Hey, how you doing? Good. Yeah, I have a question. Um, when is it the right time to leave a church? Um, my wife and I, uh, she's worked at our church for quite some time as an accountant about three years, and um, I kind of, like, married into the church. I knew a lot of people mm -hmm. there, but it kind of wasn't my go-to. But we love the people. They have a great heart. Um, you know, nothing heretical or anything. It's just kind of our heart has not been 100% there, mainly mine for the past couple years. And uh, we went and visited a church across town, and we just felt fell in love with that place a lot, and they seem to be at a place where what they have kind of like what we need as a married couple and family, but now she's ready to go 100%, <laughs> uh, which means she would lose her job at this point, but I have some reservations about it now. We're kind of like flip the script on each other. Um, and we're just kind of in anguish about it. Um, I just kind of wanted to get your take. Our pastors know about it. They're not telling us that we shouldn't go. Um, no one's saying that, actually. Uh, everyone's kind of like, well, you'll be blessed if you, we'll bless you if you go. We'd like you to stay. Uh, but my heart has just kind of been in anguish. Um, I just didn't know, like. Yeah, so, uh, so Jacob, just to, just to jump in, uh, these are personal decisions. And it's not, it's not right for me at a distance to tell you what personal decision to make. So let me just give you the guideline to, to go by. The, the fact that your, your wife would not be able to work there anymore 
is, is of consequence, but it's, it's immaterial in terms of what's best. That, that we make all kinds of decisions where we have to make sacrifices or trust God or walk by faith uh, in order to please the Lord. So that, that can't be the factor at all. The question has to simply be this, Jacob. The question has to be, number one, where can you and your wife both grow and flourish in a local church setting? Where this will be the place where you can, you can be strengthened where you can be edified, where you can be stretched, where you can be challenged, where you can be cared for, which is the best setting for that? That's number one. And number two, which is the best setting where you can both really serve and make the maximum impact? Now, there might be 10 different choices in your area, from house church to mega church to everything in between. There may be all kinds of different choices available, and it's a matter of, well, just like the food court at the mall, you, you choose the one that you're in the mood for. Well, same with the church. If you've got numerous choices, all right, Lord, between these, which is going to suit us best and where can we serve best? But if it's a clear choice, then you have to go with a clear choice. And it's not to say that the other church is bad or evil, and especially have these pastors work with you like that. It's great. So this is something you're going to have to work through, you and your wife, Uh, Double-mindedness can come easily when we love people and we don't want to make wrong decisions. But really ask the questions. You may have to lay it out, like write it out. Okay, where do we find the most harmony? Where can we most be edified, grow in the Lord, be challenged in the Lord, deepened in the Lord? Okay, that's one question. And then hopefully, correspondingly to that, where can we serve most? Where can we make the maximum impact? Where can we help uh, the most? And that's where, uh, so the job really becomes immaterial in that. So may the Lord give you wisdom and guide you. And the key thing is to be honoring to all involved and to, to give ample notice if change comes that's going to affect people. Uh, and it's great to be with folks that are willing to bless you either way. So thank you, Jacob, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Los Angeles. Stephen, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I've learned so much from listening to you. I just had uh, what I hope is a, a quick question. I was recently at church with a younger family member. We were listening to a sermon, and the pastor said that biblical marriage uh, was in, in ancient Near Eastern times, and even in the Bible, he said that the couple uh, would go in, consummate the marriage, and then when they came out, everybody would celebrate, and that this is what actually constituted a biblical marriage, and it never changed. So the younger family member I was with asked me after, well, because they have engaged in premarital sex, and he said, I don't plan on being with another woman, so in, in God's eyes, am I already married, and have I even done anything wrong if my intent is to stay with this woman? Right, so then you have to ask the question in the Bible, why was there a death penalty for a woman who got married in, under the Old Testament? woman who got married and it turned out she was not a virgin. That would mean that she slept with someone else before she was married, and yet there was a death penalty for doing that. Why was it that there were laws against fornication? And In other words, if, if, uh, if a man slept with a woman outside of wedlock, it was considered fornication. You even have a, a Hebrew word for it, sexual immorality, which includes fornication. So, no, the, the, the fact is, 
marriage is consummated in many different ways in many different societies. And the reason the Bible doesn't say you have to do it like this or like that is because it does vary from society to society. For example, in, in the, the time of Jesus or shortly thereafter, a Jewish marital custom could go three different ways. It could be with a formula, a, a specific oath, you know, I take you to be my wife. It could be with a dowry price where the woman is acquired from her family. Or it could be through the sexual act as a couple being married. So this couple has sinned. They had, it's not the unpardonable sin, but they had sex out of wedlock. Every time they do it, it's sinful. If they can't control themselves and get married in a hurry... But there is a ceremony, there is a way it's recognized under the law. It was never just a matter of, well, we slept together, now we're married. Because, again, something called fornication, which is sex outside of wedlock by people who are not married. All right, we'll be right back. God of light, hear our cry, It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions. We've got answers. Hey, just a quick heads up. Normally on Fridays, from the first moment we open the phones until the end of the hour, our phone lines are jammed, and we get to as many calls as we can, but the moment a phone line opens, it gets filled. For some reason today, we've got some phone lines open, so just letting you know, if you've been trying to call and had a hard time getting through, now is a great time to call. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Ephraim in Houston. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Yeah, I have a question about, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, it talks about how, like, uh, God created man. And then later, uh, it talks about, like, Adam. So, like, I want to know, is the Bible in order? Or was Adam the first one? Or was man, like, there were men before Adam? Yeah, so first thing in Hebrew, the word for man is Adam. Okay, it's, it's the same word, Adam. So when God says, let us make Adam in our image, and then he makes Adam the, the first one. So Adam is absolutely the first man. There, there's no question okay. whatsoever. Uh, Adam is the first man. Now, oh, cool. there, are, there are scientists who will debate whether there was any type of, of being that was like man, before man, etc. That's a whole separate subject. But when it says, let us yeah. make man, not say Adam, but let us make man in our image and, and according to our likeness, uh, that's Adam. So Adam is the first man, and then a- Adam and Eve, the first couple, the first human beings, without question, Scripture does teach that. Okay, and then the other one would be like, for the most part, is the Bible kind of like uh, in order, like from Genesis, Exodus, and stuff like that? Is it like, is that the same time frame, like the stories, how they go? Like within time, did it? Did like Genesis? Yeah, but but not like, not not a hundred percent, not a hundred percent. For okay. for example, when you go from Genesis to Deuteronomy, yeah, that's in order, and then Deuteronomy recaps a lot of things. But uh, uh, and then then Joshua comes, then Judges, then First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. When you go to First and Second Chronicles, now that's repeating 
uh, some of what's in First and Second Kings, and then going a little bit beyond that. But w- once you get to some of the other books, for example, Isaiah does come before Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is, is right before around the same time as, as Ezekiel. Um, but then you have the 12 minor prophets. Uh, Hosea is the time of Isaiah. Uh, Joel, we don't know exactly when. Amos is earlier than Isaiah, so things get in a different order at that point. The letters of Paul were basically grouped together based on length, uh, going from the longest Romans and then getting shorter thereafter, uh, and, and in some organization within that. So those are not all in chronological order. So good parts of the Bible are, but not everything. It's, it's not always in chronological order. And sometimes, for example, in the Gospels, they're not always necessarily in chronological order. Uh, Luke might be more so, but a Gospel author may take one account and put it in a certain place because he wants to tie it in with a certain point. So they're not strictly chronological in that regard. Okay, cool. You answered my question. All right. God bless you. Thanks. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let me grab a YouTube question from Julius. What does the Bible say about immigration? Does it condemn mass immigration like in Europe, or does it encourage it? There are a few different ways to look at this. In ancient Israel, those that were going to become part of Israel, so those who wanted to immigrate and join the people of Israel, then had to become part of the the people of Israel and live by Israel's laws. At least some of the laws were going to apply to them. The idea of coming in, joining the people, and not living by their laws— and not trying to be one with the people, that was, that was not uh, a, an option. And the idea of coming in and being um, hostile, no, Israel would kill those enemies. On the flip side, throughout the Bible, we're called to, to be compassionate towards the stranger, towards the alien. So the Bible would call us to treat with compassion those in legitimate need that we can help. All right. And, and we have ways to do that. I, uh, from the airport today, I was driven by a man who came from Mali, came as a student, so Mali in Africa, but then applied to stay here. And now is a hardworking citizen in our country, loves being in America. So there are legal ways to do this. Uh, the question is, is mass migration the way it's taking place in Europe wise? Uh, is it part of a larger Islamic invasion of culture. In other words, where enough Muslims move in, they don't assimilate it into the culture and want to impose their culture. That would be different than the biblical mandate to, to love the stranger. So in other words, there has to be wisdom in anything that's done, but we should be moved by compassion. Uh, as I've taught about this, the government's role should be security and the church's role should be compassion. So yeah, the government is going to seek to be compassionate, but the government needs to make sure that we're secure as a nation, and then we open our doors to worthy or truly needy immigrants. That's one. Two is that we, uh, we as the church exercise compassion and do everything we can to reach out. And uh, let's see. Uh, David asks on Facebook, is all sin equal? Oh, no, no, certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, for example, Jesus tells Pilate that those who turned him over will have the greater judgment. They, they will be held guilty uh, because they committed a greater sin. Jesus, in Matthew 23, rebukes religious leaders and said, you know, you tithe on the smallest items, but you neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You don't find God judging Israel because the people thought nasty thoughts. 
You find God judging Israel because they sacrificed babies on the altar, because they committed adultery and idolatry and injustice. Uh, so if, if the sins were, if it was just a matter of sometimes the guys had some lustful thoughts to the girls, and a couple of times the girls were, were gossiping about the guys, that, that's not going to bring national judgment. So no, all sin is not equal. And here, try it, try it out, uh, try it out. Uh, a guy, this is the Robert Gagnon, Professor Robert Gagnon illustration. A guy comes home from work one day and he says to his wife, you know, honey, I can't believe it. We had this business luncheon today and I, I, I pigged out. I had extra rolls and the appetizer and dessert. I just feel like a pig. Well, gluttony's wrong. Gluttony's bad. We understand that. And she says, oh, honey, it's just a business luncheon. It's okay. It's just one time. Not a big deal. He goes, oh. Next day he comes home from work. He goes, how was work? Well, I, I took off from work and I just slept around with some ladies. And <laughs> uh, you think you're going to get the same reaction? Obviously not. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Orlando, Florida. Steve, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So I had um, kind of two questions that go hand in hand. Um, my first one is about the red heifer in Israel. So I believe it's, it's my understanding that if the red heifer is deemed in, to qualify, they would then sacrifice it, is that correct? And then they would preserve its ashes? Yeah, in other words, the, the laws as given in the book of Numbers, those would be carried out. And this would be for purification. So technically speaking, without a functioning temple and without the waters of purification, uh, the whole world or the Jewish people have been in a state of ritual uncleanness. doesn't mean they can't do everything they do and pray, etc. But technically right. it would mean that. So once there is a third temple, then you would also have to have all of the various things involved with it, including the ashes of a red heifer without blemish, Yes, yeah, so the animal would be sacrificed, and I'm not one of those that follows these things in terms of, you know, what's the latest update, but I did see uh, a couple months ago, maybe, that they found the red heifer without blemish, so they're going to watch it carefully. Yeah, so theoretically, it could get to a certain point where they, they could kill it and preserve the ashes, but the question is, well, how can you ritually slaughter it if you don't have a temple? So God, I would oh, think God. you have the temple. Now, someone could correct me on this, but my thought would be you have to have the temple before you can ritually slaughter it. And then once you ritually slaughter it, then you can preserve the ashes for the waters of purification. Okay. Well, yeah, because that was basically my question is, um, would they try to build the temple first and then slaughter it? Or if they can't build the temple, and that was my second question is, what else is stopping them? And I know there's some political reasons, but from actually building the temple. Yeah, well, you, it's, it's not just political. Well, first, the average Israeli doesn't think about building a temple any more than, than you think about a Mars invasion on your, on your home street. It's, it doesn't exist. It's just completely out of their thoughts. Most religious Jews are praying for the Messiah to be revealed, Messiah to come, and then he'll build the temple. It's only a tiny, tiny part of the population that's thinking about building a third temple. Evangelical Christians are more interested in than Israelis and religious Jews. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, uh, based on what we understand the original temple location to be, you can't build there because you've got the Dome of the Rock there, which is one of the most sacred mosques in Islam. So it would take a massive, massive event uh, for that to change. Uh, something, uh, you know, Joel Richardson's idea and his Islamic Antichrist argument 
is as good as any. And I don't know. I, personally, I have no idea how it would happen. But his idea is that the, the uh, Antichrist will be Islamic and that he will barter the Dome of the Rock so that Israel can have it and, and destroy that location. I mean, think of that. And then build the third temple and that that would somehow be acceptable or build it, ne- whatever, next to the Dome of the Rock. I don't think that could happen. Uh, but it would take something massive, cataclysmic. Otherwise, there's no way that it could possibly happen right now. And those who argue that the temple location is actually somewhere else, uh, I'm not convinced of that personally, but I don't know that there's any option of something like that happening anyway. So right now it's all talk, but it's interesting talk because past generations couldn't talk about it because there wasn't a Jewish-controlled Jerusalem as there is now. All right, we'll be right back with your calls. Stay right here. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends, as we welcome all of our stations in greater Dallas-Fort Worth area, remember, maybe you don't know. So if you do know, remember, if you don't know, tonight and tomorrow, I'll be speaking at a special conference in Fort Worth, uh, Paul Wilbur, wonderful anointed messianic jewish worship leader and dear friend uh he is going to be ministering in music uh, i'll be speaking ron Cantor, usher in trader usher dear friend for many years from israel one of the most dynamic speakers you hear same with ron Cantor. we've been buddies for decades it's called israel the church and the coming revival this is at open door church 301 south dobson street in burleson texas uh, first service, 7 o'clock tonight. And then I'll be speaking tomorrow morning as well. There's a banquet tomorrow night. So be sure to be here. If you're anywhere around, you can find the itinerary by going to askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Just click on itinerary. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Welcome to the broadcast. You've got questions. We've got answers. We go to Michigan. Jake, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate you and your show. Thank you. Uh, my question is uh, referring to a quick two-part question, and uh, if possible, I'd like a quick response or two response. Um, the first part is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. said, uh, Let us make human beings in our image, and then verse 28, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Is being fruitful and multiplying a command? And also, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16... God uh, levied down a um, disciplinary action on Eve and said, I will increase the pain of your pregnancy and your childbearing. So with that being said, if there's an increase in the pain, and if being fruitful and multiplying is a command, is it possible that Adam and Eve had children in the garden before the fall? Right. Yeah, appreciate the question. Are you still there? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yep, yep. Okay. Yeah, so number one, the words in Hebrew, pruravu, are both a command and an empowerment. Be fruitful and multiply is a command, but it's an empowerment. 
And in, in context, it's more of an empowerment than a command in terms of uh, other, the, the animal world is also empowered to, to, to multiply. However, you can clearly see it's a command because it's be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. So right. the, we, the human race is being told to do that. In Judaism, it's taken chronologically to be the first command that was ever given. And as long as someone is physically able, they fulfill that command in Judaism by having at least one boy, one girl. Uh, you may have seven girls, and you keep trying for the boy, and you're still doing your best. But, um, yeah, so it was certainly a command given, and then it's repeated in Genesis 9 as a command to repopulate the earth. As, as for Genesis 3, the, uh, it's clear that Adam and Eve had no children before the fall, because uh, in anything thereafter, uh, the, the first child born is in the fourth chapter, and this is after the fall. It's, it's really the English that would throw you there, uh, because it's, it's, uh, the Hebrew is, is multiply, uh, so that, that God is going to multiply her, her pains, uh, or some would say intensify your labor pains. It's not, the, the Hebrew is not so much increase that you're already having pains, but they're going to get worse. Rather, uh, as different translations put it, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. Uh, I'll sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. I will make most severe your pangs in birth, uh, in, in childbearing. And, and the Hebrew is, is just literally greatly multiply, make many. So if, yeah, quick response here. If she never had the experience of childbirth before, why would there be a, have to be a multiplication of pain or an increase or a um, some way? Because the way I look at it is like if if uh, my dad gave me a whooping on my behind, and he said, if you do it again, I'm going to give you an extra hard spanking. All right, I how, how, know, about I, I, how, how about I this? I wouldn't know what the first you're, was you're, without the latter, right? Right, right. But very, but no one says she knew anyway. Just it's it's going to be bad, Okay. And maybe there would have been mild pain before, and now there'll be severe pain. But if, uh, if you're about to go on a, a road somewhere you've never gone before, right? And I just mm-hmm. tell you, uh, God just told me this trip is going to be really bad, really rough. Uh, you're going you're gonna to really struggle getting there. Well, you've never been there, but you, you understand what it means. There's no mystery. Uh, and, and I would never, never in 100 years, reading the Hebrew, assume that that meant that she already had a child. And knew what childbearing was. The Hebrew certainly doesn't speak of that as well. Again, just make your pains bad. That's enough to know. So were, were, was Adam and Eve disobedient to God's first command up no. until the fall? I mean, because it, it seems like the chronological order. Um, seems yeah, but, like the but chronological Jake, here, order here's, here's yeah, just, just in all candor. Uh, uh, yeah, just in all candor. You asked me a question, I answered honestly. You're trying to argue a point, but there's no scriptural support for it. We don't know how quickly these things happen, all right? It, there's, no, there's nothing saying they were there for, for 35 years and, and never touched each other. And that No, that's not what the text says. You get the idea of, of immediacy of sin. But there is zero evidence to support what you're saying. You're trying to read something in that you can't. So I, I don't want to get into an argument with you about it. All I'm saying is you're reading something in that's not in the text. And what we do know is that when it does record them having children, that the children are then uh, uh, Cain and Abel. Those are the first two. All right, hey, thank you for calling. I appreciate it, but d- don't, don't try to read something in that's, that's not there. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Jim in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. 
Thank you very kindly. Good afternoon, Dr. Brown. I have hey, a good afternoon. Pertaining to the Masons, uh, what's your position on Masons? Well, uh, I am not an expert on Masons, and I have some friends that would kind of argue that Masonry is everywhere in America and that Masons still have a lot of control in America and that they were really heavily involved in the founding of America. But this much I do know, that uh, to be a full-fledged Mason it would be in contradiction with being a full-fledged follower of Jesus, that there would be a contradiction in loyalties and even in certain things believed. Um, so, you know, none of my friends come from Mason backgrounds. You know, here and there when I've discussed it with former Masons over the years, they've shared those things with me. But if someone is a committed follower of Jesus, they wouldn't be a committed Mason at the same time. Okay. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go over to Greg in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, thanks for all you do. Uh, my question is, in Gen- uh, Genesis 4:26, uh, there at the end it says, at that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. So I didn't know if you could expound upon that uh, as the time of when they called him by name. Uh, did Adam and Eve not know his name? And uh, what was the name they started calling him first? Yeah, so th- the question is, is the emphasis in Hebrew that they began to use the name or that they really began to pray so you could read it either way in Hebrew, as I'm looking at the text, Azhu Chali Krov Adonai. The emphasis could be at that time, they began to call out, to cry out in the name of the Lord, right? Or at that time, they began to cry out in the name of the Lord. So uh, we really don't know specifically what Adam and Eve and their immediate descendants called God. Did they, did they know him as Yahweh? Did they know him by his personal name? It's certainly possible. We know the Lord walked with them in the cool of the garden, so there was just, you know, just being right there with them and communing and interacting with them. We know that God makes the meaning of his name clear to Moses many generations later. So, so this would be, you know, several thousand years later in the chronology. Um, but all we have is the text right here. In, in other words, what you read is what I read, and there's nothing before it or immediately after it to indicate. Now, we know the patriarchs uh, also interacted with the Lord as Yahweh by his name, but he primarily revealed himself to them as El Shaddai, apparently referring to his power or his provision. Uh, so we don't know. Uh, it could well be that this is the first time that people really began to turn to the Lord, really began to, to pray and really began to invoke him by name. But beyond that, your understanding of the text is as good as mine, because all we have before that is Genesis 1 through 4 up through verse 25, right? right. And so we have no more information out, outside of that. So it's a fascinating question. I just can't give you a definitive answer beyond that. Okay. Thank you so much. You have a great day. All right. You too. God bless Bye-bye. you. 866 866- Three, four, truth. Uh, over in Dallas, we go to George. Welcome to the line of fire. Yes, thank you, Doctor Brown, for taking my call. You're uh, welcome. I got a quick. Well, I was just thinking about what you just said. Essentially, because uh, God tells Moses that he uh, 
that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know him by the name Yahweh. But then when you read in Genesis where Abraham is talking to, to God, he refers to him as Yahweh. So that's Yeah, yeah of, exactly. So that's what I just referenced. So the debate there in terms of Exodus 6 is, is God saying it was in my character as El Shaddai that I made myself known, and in my character as Yahweh in terms of a covenant-keeping God dealing with the nation, I didn't make myself known. It's, it's a fascinating passage for those very reasons. Critical scholars say that's proof of different authors. One author used the Yahweh name, the other author didn't use the Yahweh name, and one author didn't know what the other author did, and then later editors put the whole thing together, and that's how we got the five books of Moses. Of course, I reject that for many reasons. But, yes, yeah, since, since we have the obvious there that you just mentioned, that that would indicate that it could be referring to the way God made himself known. In other words, Elohim, if he made himself known as Elohim, that would be more as the God of power, the creator. If he made himself known as Yahweh, would that speak more of his, of his covenantal uh, love? If he uh, revealed himself as El Shaddai, would that refer more to his provision or, or abundance? Or, so that, that's the debate there, but it's, it's a great question. So your, your specific question today was? Yes, my question is in uh, uh, John 15. And it says, I am the true vine, and my father is a farmer. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already pruned, clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. As branch cannot bear fruit, my son. I tell you what, we come back, we'll get to your question in John 15. Stay right here. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us on the Friday broadcast on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Right, we go back to George in Dallas. So your question there from okay. uh, John well, 15. Verse so verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who remains in me and I in him, the same bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so my question is regarding verse 2. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of confusing. because If you're in Christ, you're going to bear fruit, according to verse 5. But it seems he's saying... Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. How, is, how can you be a branch in Christ and not bear fruit? Yeah, so that's the whole thing, which is why he says, if you remain in me and my words in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So in other words, it is possible for someone to have come to faith, come to know the Lord, but not remain united with him. So they are in Christ, they're in the Messiah, but then they, are, they do not walk with him, they do not remain united with him, they are not in fellowship with him, his word is not in their heart, they will not bear fruit, and if they continue to go like that, ultimately they'll, they'll, be, they'll be removed. So either removed in, in judgment, 
uh, in discipline or removed in that they totally deny the Lord and walk away. So it's simply to be in him without remaining united. You, you, will, you will not stay in him unless there's fellowship, unless there's intimacy with God, unless there's prayer, unless his word is in our hearts. Just, just to have been born again does not keep us in him, according to John 15. Well, my question would be, isn't the fruit the indication that you are in Christ? If you're bearing fruit. If you're bearing godly fruit, the fruit of new birth, the fruit of new life, uh, yeah, absolutely. But what if you're not bearing fruit? So the fact is, you can be born again, you can be in Jesus, and and then uh, you can walk away from him, you will cease to bear fruit, and ultimately you'll cease to be in him. Okay, because... It doesn't say ceases to bear fruit, but I guess I guess that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that, that's well, obviously that what it's saying. Sense. So it's starting with the presupposition of people being part of him, in him, uh, just like Israel, right? All Israel was called out of Egypt, but not all Israel walked in obedience. So, yeah, I, I appreciate your question and what you're looking for, but that's, that's the best way to understand it. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, right before I go back to the phones, yeah, I, I figured it out. I figured out exactly how YouTube decides what videos are acceptable and what videos are unacceptable. There's no method to it. There, somebody it depends on who watches it. You say, why am I saying this? Okay, I just got, during the break, checking my account, from Gmail, where I, I hear from YouTube. I mean, that's just where I get certain things, different mail accounts. So my Gmail account is where I hear from YouTube. So every day they're telling me this video is acceptable, this is not. Uh, hi, Dr. Brown. Oh, hi, Ask Dr. Brown. Great news. After manually reviewing your video, we've determined that it is suitable for all advertisers. What was the video? The Catholic sex scandal and more pro-life calls. That was suitable for all all viewers, so no problem to use it for advertising, okay? And you're ready for this. And, that, and then next to that is this. After reviewing your video, we've confirmed that it isn't suitable for all advertisers. What's the video? Dr. Brown takes your calls. <laughs> and this has happened like twice this week where a video that I thought, there's no way YouTube is going gonna, is gonna to approve this for advertising. It gets approved. Yep. And then, and then another video where I think, of course, this gets approved. It's as generic as can be. doesn't get approved. Talk about it. crazy. <clears throat> 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Cary, North Carolina. Greg, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you. Uh, quick question. Uh, after Jesus' death and burial, at, between his res- before he re- resurrected, um, was there... A place he went to? Did he go somewhere in that time frame? And 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 also, if you could just comment, maybe quickly about if it if it has anything to do with Abraham's bosom, maybe where Lazarus was spoken of by Jesus that he went in uh, Abraham's bosom, and then and the and the rich man was in hell. Right. So so there are, there are certain things that are clear. There are certain things that aren't clear. Uh, I was just looking at the Apostles' Creed yesterday, uh, day before when I was debating a full preterist who denies the future resurrection of the dead or the future return of Jesus. 
And in the Apostles' Creed, of course, I was just looking for statements of different creeds about that. And of course, the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus died and he went to hell. Now, does that mean that he suffered in hell, that he went to the netherworld? Uh, I understand the New Testament to tell us that he went into the netherworld. 1 Peter 3 says that by the Spirit, he went into the netherworld and he preached to the spirits that were in prison that had disobeyed long before. So there were uh, angelic beings that had fallen. There were human beings that had sinned. They were in a place of, of punishment, but as a place of holding, you could say. He went, he didn't preach the gospel to them, meaning, uh, okay, you've got another chance. If you'll believe now and pray, you can be saved. No, rather, he sealed their fate. He proclaimed to them, uh, basically, I am he. I've conquered sin and death and the grave. So that happens. There are some who believe that Luke 16 and other passages point to the righteous before the cross went into a place of, uh, called Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise, but not direct presence of God in heaven. So some believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he then descended into that place as well and brought all of the righteous of previous generations into heaven once he purified the heavenlies with his own blood. That's speculation. We do see from Colossians 2 that God, through Jesus, made an open show of the demonic powers, Satan and demonic powers, uh, the image being Jesus leading them in his train uh, as, as he ascends triumphantly with the enemy defeated behind him. Uh, those images would be there. But beyond that, uh, it's, it's debatable. The idea that he, that he suffered in hell, uh, I do not find in Scripture. Acts 2 does mention that the pangs of death could not keep him, uh, him being the prince of life. But beyond that, I don't believe he suffered in hell. Rather, he proclaimed his victory to the imprisoned spirits, and possibly, if the righteous dead were not yet in God's heavenly presence, he brought them uh, to, the, to the heavenly presence during that time. But some of this is, you know, we do our best to piece together the different things in Scripture. Uh, some of it is speculative, but we do our best to, to come to an understanding. Thank you very much. That that pretty much answers my question because I I was yeah and, sure. and I, yeah let, was, let me also say this, Greg. Yeah, in, in Ephesians four, it says that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. Now, some believe it means he came down from heaven to earth. Others believe it means he went beneath the earth, so to speak, into the nether world. And you can make a good case for that. And then it says he led captives in his train. That would mean he made an open display of demonic powers. Satan and his minions uh, going behind him as he ascended. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, that's that's all I had to. I just uh, I, the thing I was I was talking to a couple guys last night at this fellowship I went to, and we were discussing. And I said I I, I thought that maybe you know because of it mentioned like you said in Luke sixteen about Lazarus being in Abraham's bosom. Um, that I thought that maybe he went there to retrieve them, but I didn't know. For, I wanted to yeah, find it's, out. It's, po- it's possible. The question is, was that a literal place, or was that just a description and a parable? But it's certainly possible, and there are many who do believe that, Greg, for sure. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Um, oh, we'll stay and carry. What do you know? We'll stay and carry. Eric, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you for your work. Um, I heard a message recently and uh, quoted Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I've been convinced that everybody in Israel 
uh, knew Jesus was the Messiah, and it's clear that he demonstrated that, and they were all convinced. Many of them wanted a, uh, a savior like King David, but uh, why would Jesus say that if everybody in Israel knew his works and who he was? Uh, well, number one, we don't know that everyone knew, but number two, these were Roman soldiers. That's where he prays the prayer. These were Roman soldiers uh, just doing their job, crucifying another, another victim, this guy beaten to a bloody pulp. So even if they had heard of Jesus or, or some messianic figure, they wouldn't have known it was him. But they, they did not know they were crucifying the Son of God. They just were just doing their job, just nailing another okay. person to the cross. Yes, I was assuming he was talking about the Pharisees, but uh, your answer. No, no, just read Luke, read Luke twenty three. Luke twenty three is in the context of the uh, the Roman soldiers. So, uh, yep. All right, hey, just about out of time, and I'm waiting for a caller to get off hold so I can respond to him. But last reminder: if if uh, you still want to go to Israel. It's possible. We still have room, but it's very limited. You need to get your reservation in immediately at AskDrBrown.org, right on the homepage, February 1st through 10th. Hey, uh, Eric, Johnson City, Tennessee, we're just about out of time. Uh, I'm Pentecostal by background. I speak in tongues and believe in the gifts and power of the Spirit for today. I believe the Pentecostal charismatic movement is a legitimate movement based on New Testament truth and God's outpouring of the Spirit through many generations. However, like every movement, it has aberrations and issues that need to be addressed. And I address those in my recent book, Playing With Holy Fire. All right, we are out of here. Be blessed.